0: Please remain standing for our gospel lesson and our sermon text from the book of Matthew in chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken through the Lord by the prophet saying Behold the virgin shall conceive or, behold the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which is translated God with us Then Joseph being aroused from sleep did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took him his wife and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son And he called his name Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you sent your only begotten Son into the world to be one of us, to take on human flesh. And we thank you also for your word, which reveals him to us. And we pray that as we consider your word today that our hearts and minds might be impressed with the gospel and that we might be conformed greater into his image. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Just about a week ago, I was having a conversation with someone, and they asked me a question that you always kind of want to hear as a pastor. They said, well, what, what exactly is the gospel Can you explain that to me? What does that that mean, the gospel? I said to them, essentially, the gospel is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Essentially, the gospel is who Jesus is and what he came to do. And that really, that's the message, in fact, of the lesson that we just read here from Matthews. Gospel, from the reading today. It's Matthew's version of the Christmas story, the message of Christ's birth, that he is God with us, God in our flesh, come into our humanity, into our vulnerability, into history in order to save us. It's who Jesus is and what he came to do. It's the essential message of Christianity. It's a message that can change our hearts and our minds and our lives dramatically, But the passage that we read is also a story about God, how in his gracious plan and his saving purposes, used that gospel message to bring one man, to bring Joseph, to the greatest crisis in his life. The gospel always represents a crisis, a decision point for each of us, whether we are Just now considering Christ and his claims, or whether we've been walking with Jesus for decades, the gospel always comes to us and forces us to make a decision. And as we walk through the passage today, we're going to see how Joseph wrestled with the angel's message, and how it is the same with us, that the gospel always comes to us like it did to him, first as shocking information, then In God's grace, it can move to an illuminating revelation that finally issues forth in living transformation. So those of you with outlines, you have got a longer one to write today. It's shocking information, illuminating revelation, and finally a living transformation. It's how the gospel comes to all of us. First, the shocking information. This, of course, comes to Joseph in verse 18, where it says, after his mother, Mary, was betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now, it says that Joseph and Mary were betrothed. And in that time, most marriages were arranged marriages you know, between families. And at once everything was agreed upon, the couple was already legally married. And you see in verse 19 how Joseph is called Mary's husband already. But before... Uh, The day of the wedding and before living together, they were betrothed, usually for about a year. And this separation, this time of separation allowed for uh, financial preparations to be made, uh, living arrangements, and for the wedding to be planned. The time frame also uh, legitimized any children that were to be born and uh, proved, as it were, the purity of the couple And this is what's called into question when Joseph is shocked to find out that Mary, his betrothed wife, is with child. She's pregnant. And we know from Luke's account that soon after Mary receives word that she will conceive by the Holy Ghost, that she quickly goes into the hill country to visit her her relative, Elizabeth. And so Joseph finds out, and we don't know, did did she talk to Joseph before leaving, or did she go to Elizabeth's house and then send word back, or was it that after she returned some months from the hill country, that the fact of her pregnancy was simply undeniable? We don't know. Matthew doesn't say. We just know that this startling news came came to Joseph. But what Matthew does want us to know is that Joseph is of the highest character. He says in verse 19 that Joseph was a just man, a good man. He loved God. He obeyed God's laws as far as he was able to. And as a just man, as a righteous person trying to do what God wanted to, he had every right to cancel the marriage. Perhaps he even felt like he had an obligation to do so to some extent. Joseph is righteous. But we also know that Joseph is merciful. We must assume that at the very least he's quite confused and perplexed about what's happening in his life with his betrothed wife. And the angel's message to him that we're going to read in a minute strongly implies that he didn't know or didn't believe that the child was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So you can imagine the kinds of things that are going through Joseph's mind. And whatever their relationship was before, we can tell that Joseph genuinely cared about Mary's well-being. He could have exposed her as an unwed mother to public disgrace and severe penalties. In fact, in Deuteronomy 22, in some instances... Uh, Even the death penalty was allowed for infidelity during the betrothal period. But that's not what Joseph wanted to do. Joseph was not a man who was concerned about himself. He's merciful. He's kind. He's godly. He's pious. He's a man with faith in God, and and yet this announcement that Mary is pregnant by the Holy Spirit creates a crisis in his life. Why? Because the announcement that the Messiah has come as a kind is it's not an abstract truth. It's not that the Messiah is coming into the world in a generalized sort of way, but the message that comes to Joseph is that the Christ has come into your life in particular. He's involved. He's implicated. He can't be detached. His life is going to change one way or another forever after this event. And friends, it is the same for every single one of us. Emmanuel, God with us, is more than a title. It's a declaration that God has entered our realm and we must reckon with him. God has entered human history declaring that he is the God with whom we have to do. No wonder it says that Joseph thought about these things. He pondered them and turned them over in his mind. Because Joseph shows us that if Christ comes into your life, or if Christ comes into your life in a newer or a deeper way, it's going to mean letting go of three things. Just like Joseph, if Christ comes into your life, or he comes into your life in a newer or a deeper way, you're going to have to let go of the same three things that Joseph did. And one of those things is control. Just look at Joseph's life. He lived in an unknown and an exceedingly small village. right? And as far as we can tell, he planned on living a simple life in that village. Getting married, having some kids, working his trade, living an obscure life, and dying an obscure death. He did not plan on his betrothed wife becoming pregnant. He did not plan on adopting a child. And when he made a plan in order to deal with those realities, God sent an angel and overrode his plan. Joseph doesn't even get to name the child, right? The angel tells him this is what the child's name will be. And in the next chapter, we're going if, if we read into chapter 2, we would see that Joseph has strangers show up at his house with treasures for this child. And then he's going to have to flee for his life and live in another country. When God comes into your life... God is the one who is in control. Which is just another way of saying that life with Christ is an adventure. Life with Christ is an adventure even if you never leave your house. And if you've ever read an adventure story, you know that adventures are unforeseen. They simply show up at your doorstep. And then once you accept them, once you step into them, you're not the one in control anymore. In uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's book, The Hobbit, okay, this is an adventure story some of you are familiar with, some of you are not, but in The Hobbit, the book, a wizard Gandalf shows up at the diminutive hobbit Bilbo's door, unannounced, and he says this, let me quote from the book, he says, Gandalf says, I'm looking for someone to share in an adventure that I'm arranging, and it's very difficult to find anyone. To which Bilbo responds, I should think so in these parts. We are plain, quiet folk, and we have no use for adventures. Nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things. They make you late for dinner. <laughs> All right. Joseph has to be thinking things like this. This is a quiet village. What's going on here? Aren't we often afraid to yield to the work of Christ in our life for fear of the unknown changes that it will bring. Now, Bilbo eventually accepts this offer for an adventure, and when he returns home at the end of the book, he's a different person. He's a different hobbit. He's brave and wise, loving, deeper. He's gone toe-to-toe with a dragon, and he's learned to sacrifice his reputation and even offer up his life for the good of his friends. But he would not have become that person without the adventure, without losing tight control on his life. And when Christ comes into your life, he's going to make you into something that you cannot now dream of. And you cannot know how he's going to do it. But you can be sure that you're going to be late for dinner. All right. What is God asking you to relinquish control of? Where is Christ wanting to come into your life or come into your life in a newer and deeper way that will mean letting go of what is familiar, letting go of some of the control in your life? Your life may not be dramatic like Joseph's. You may not live in another country. And unlike Bilbo, you may never see a dragon. But you do follow a man if you follow Christ, who said, "Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it." For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Matthew sixteen, twenty-five through twenty-seven. In the long run, there's nothing safer than to entrust control of your life to Christ. And in the short run, there's nothing more dangerous because you don't know what he's going to ask you to do or to say, but you do know that he's good and that he is working in your life in order to make you more like him. So if you are going to accept Christ, accept the message of Christmas into your life, it's going to mean letting go of control. That's the first thing. The second thing, like Joseph, that you'll have to let go of is your reputation I mean, we sing and read about the virgin birth so often that we forget how earth-shattering this idea really was in uh, biblical times. Nowadays, uh, people might say, oh, you know, back then, they were superstitious. They were uneducated. They believed in things like the virgin birth. But now we we know better, right? You've heard something like that, and that's simply not true. When the angel announced to Mary that she would conceive and bear a child, she asked him this, how, how will this be since I am a virgin? That's what Luke's gospel records for us. All right, they understood how these things work. And besides, Jews were the least likely people culturally to believe in the virgin birth. One Jewish apologist wrote against the early Christians saying this. Let me quote him. Quote, you endeavor to prove an incredible and well-nigh impossible thing, namely that God endured to be born and become a man, end quote. See, in the Jewish mind, God was simply too great to do something like that. He would not endure, it said, to become so low. So no, everybody, I mean everybody, would have assumed some kind of infidelity and immorality on the part of Mary or Joseph as well. In fact, it's a scandal that followed Jesus his entire life. When he would dispute with the Pharisees, the Pharisees would say something like this. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan? In other words, that you are, that you are half-bred, that your, your mother went into a foreign country and that's where she got pregnant? That's John 8, 48. Or they said to Jesus, we were not born of sexual immorality like you were, John eight forty one. 41. For Joseph to accept Christ into his life, it will mean sharing in that shame to some degree. And it will be the same for you. When you respond to God's message with simple faith and obedience, in some places and to some degree, you will be put in the same difficult position as Christ and as Joseph. That of being right, but not being thought of as right. Being right but not being thought of as right. You will lose some measure of your reputation. The third one is your own righteousness. The third one is your own righteousness. When I talk to people around Springfield who are considering Christ, or they're considering coming back to church, they often tell me uh, that they're getting back into religion. Or they say things like, I need to get my life back together or start living like I know that I should like I was taught when I was younger now in, in other words all of these people are working on some form of self-improvement project and they think that Jesus or the church or getting around the right people will help them in that project and there's nothing wrong with getting better in life at various things and if, but if that's you today if Jesus for you Is part of your help of getting back on your feet or of improving yourself, of making yourself better. You need to know that Jesus will have none of that. He did not come to earth in order to make you better. He came to earth in order to make you new. He's not interested in receiving your righteous deeds at all. He came and was born so that he could give you his righteous status. It's completely backwards. Even people like Joseph, who were righteous, humanly speaking, even those who are just and merciful and pious, often don't understand God's purposes or the right thing to do. Accepting the Christ child was accepting God's provision for the forgiveness of sin. And there's no growth in the Christian life without coming to a deeper awareness and acknowledgement of your sin. That's part of the means by which we grow. Accepting Christ's righteousness in any area of life means simultaneously repudiating your own. You cannot see the humility of Jesus without simultaneously becoming more aware of your pride. You cannot see the mercy of God without simultaneously becoming more aware of how unmerciful you are. You cannot see the purity of God without simultaneously becoming aware of how impure your own thoughts and desires are. Are. Accepting Mary, or more accurately, accepting the message of her child, means all of these things for Joseph. Joseph is going to lose control of his life, his reputation is going to be tarnished. He's going to have to repudiate any sense of self righteousness before God. It means the same things for all of us. It's no wonder. That Joseph instead chooses a quiet divorce. Humanly speaking, this makes the most sense. Okay, this is merciful for Mary and it lets him keep all of these other things. But that's not ultimately what Joseph does, is it? Why not? Because the announcement of Christ coming into the world moved for him from shocking information to an illuminating. Revelation. And how did that happen? Well, God sends an angel to Joseph, and he reveals two very important things to him about this child. Each one of them is signified by the names that were given. One is that the child's conception is from the Holy Spirit. This is God come in the flesh, as it says in verse 20. But while Joseph, he Joseph, thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, Son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 23, it says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In one sense, God is always with us. We can never flee from his presence. He is in the highest of the heavens. He is in the deepest of the depths on land or at sea. God is omnipresent. But this, Matthew says, is different. This is God with us. This is God as a man. God in human flesh. Amazing. Why would he do that? Because human flesh alone couldn't save us. Right? If a law could have been given that we could have kept and been righteous before God, God would have given us that law. If a merely human king could have organized society such that our lives would always be righteous, God would have seen to it that that happened. Both of those things were given in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, by God, and they were good and righteous and holy things, but they could not ultimately deliver us because flesh and blood by itself cannot save. No politician or physician or teacher or preacher or father or mother can deliver mankind. We need God to come because our primary problem is not educational or political. It's moral and spiritual. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. The hymn says, you see, that's what we need. That's what we needed. God had to come and be a baby so that he could live life in your place and then offer that life for you. And that's the second revelation that he has come. Jesus has come to save his people from their sins, as it says in verse 21. And she shall bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What an amazing passage that is. The name Jesus is built off the Hebrew word for salvation. It means God saves. All right, but don't miss what the angel said. Call his name God saves, for he, that is this baby child, will save his people from their sins call him God saves because he will save his people from their sins. This is God come to save you from your sins. Now God saves and delivers his people in lots of ways. He gives food to the hungry. He heals the sick. He comforts the brokenhearted. Many in Jesus's day had hoped that the Messiah would save Israel from their Roman oppressors. But Jesus came first and foremost, it says here, to deal with sin. Sin is the root of all other calamities. Calamities in our lives come from many sources. Accidents, forgetfulness, disease. But the root cause of disorder is sin. And the greatest disorder of all is to be at odds with God. Christmas is about peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconcile. And where were they reconciled? When Jesus died on the cross for your sins, by offering up his own perfect and spotless life, and then rising from the dead. And just like his scandalous birth from the outside, Jesus' death looks for all the world like weakness and shame and even sin. But on the cross, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and not counting their trespasses against them because he was in that moment counting them against his perfect, spotless, virgin-born son. At that moment, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This message is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And what makes the difference in your life? God's illuminating revelation. His word to you, when, he, when by the Spirit, he takes that word, he takes that message, and he makes it real in your heart, in your life. Has that happened for you? Has that happened to you recently, in a newer and deeper way? Remember, remember what we said, this is how you grow in the Christian life when God makes that gospel real to you in a way that it wasn't previously, when you see your sin for what it is and you see his holiness for what it is and how he has given that to you, free grace, as it happened to you recently. When it does, when God in his grace makes that revelation abound to you, it will issue forth in living transformation. This is the third Thing that happens to Joseph. The gospel comes as shocking information, and then God gives him an illuminating revelation, and it issues forth in living transformation. See the end here in verse 24. It says, Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. See, Joseph. Here, he's given up control of his life. He's obedient. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. All right, if you're going to obey God in a difficult situation, you're going to need to see, like Joseph did, that Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. In a sense, you're going to need to see how Jesus gave up control of his own life for you. In the book of Philippians, Paul writes this, Let this mind be in you which is yours in Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be clutched at. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Let that mind be in you. Let the incarnation of Christ change the way that you think about obeying God and serving others. Let your mind be saturated with the fact that Jesus gave up enjoyment of his heavenly glory and came for you and obeyed God perfectly on your behalf. Let your heart be saturated with that until it begins to change the way that you act toward others. Now it says, Joseph Takes Mary to him. He married her and adopted her child. He voluntarily identified with Mary and Jesus Christ in their weakness and their disgrace, such that their weakness and disgrace became his. Rachel has been uh, taking an online class with some missionaries in Japan, and every couple weeks she gets to talk with missionaries serving in Japan, and recently one of them told her that, that adoption is exceedingly rare in that country. You know, in the United States, where there's more of a Christian heritage, we think of adoption as something that's difficult but noble, right? And that's as it should be, because adoption is difficult but noble. Um, but in Japan, this missionary said, most people won't adopt because if someone is an orphan, they assume that something shameful has happened in that person's life or in their family life, and to accept them into your family would be to accept their shame into your own life. Friends, that's exactly what Jesus did for you, not only on the cross as he died under the shame that you deserve, but also in his incarnation. You know, we like to say that Jesus spent time with sinners and outcasts rather than the righteous and the strong. But Jesus was with sinners and outcasts any time when he was with another human being. Ultimately speaking, compared to God, every human being is sinful and every human has been cast out of his presence. Jesus was with sinners and outcasts just by virtue of the incarnation. Any time he spoke with someone, he spoke with a sinner and an outcast. The people that Jesus actually spent more time with were the humble. With those who recognized their state. That's the basis for Paul's injunction in Romans when he says, Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Romans 12.6 God may or may not call you to do something like adopt, but he is calling you to associate with the humble. So kids, who is in your Sunday school class or in your co-op or in your group of friends that doesn't have many friends? Everyone, who is that person that's difficult to get along with or strange or poor? If you can't think of anyone, it might be you. I don't know. <laughs> it can be me. Right? The incarnation shows us that God and the godly associate with sinners and the lonely, lowly. And the key, of course, to doing this is remembering that you are the sinner and the outcast. You are the humble that Christ came to serve. When you recognize this, you'll recognize that you're not condescending to spend time with anyone else at all. And that same truth won't only humble you, it'll also lift you up. God loves you. God became a human being for you. And he still intercedes and cares for you. The book of Hebrews tells us that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but in all points was tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4 15 and 16. You see, Jesus knows. Jesus has been there. Jesus has been tired. Jesus has been weak. He's been hungry. He's been an outcast. He's been shamed. He's been tempted. He's suffered. He knows what you're going through. And that truth, the author of Hebrews says, tells us to come boldly to him. He's without sin. But that doesn't mean that he will put you off. That means he will sympathize with you. So come boldly to the throne of grace and find help in time of need. He's also God. He's God with us. So go to him in confession of sin. Go to him in prayer and ask for help. This is the message of Christmas. This is the message of Emmanuel, God with us. It's nothing other than the gospel, who Jesus is and what he came to do. So as you ponder this shocking news, may God give you the grace to understand it and the, and the power to live in light of it. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that Jesus did come and take on human flesh. Thank you that he knows, that he understands, that he calls us to himself in new and deeper ways. And we pray, Father, that this message of the gospel would be impressed on our hearts and minds, that we might live in light of it, that we might have Christmas joy all of our days. In Jesus' name, amen.